Thank you, brother. Uh, I'm not going to talk a lot about baseball, even though that is part of my life, and I'm not going to apologize for that, because some people, like, didn't get along with the athletes in high school and stuff, and they're still bitter about that, so you need to pray about that, okay? <laughs> um, <clears throat> I really want to thank uh, Ken, who I think is a brilliant communicator. The guy's amazing. I've been around the best. Amen? And I'm not getting brownie points for that. He really is amazing. Uh, because of my, uh, you know, background as a Major League Baseball player, I've got to do these Christian camps over many, many years back east, and uh, I got to meet some of the greatest speakers around. But I think Ken tops them all. I really do. Amen? And Drew's right behind him. Drew's a good communicator, too. I mean, I love his illustrations about his kids and all that is just real stuff, you know. These guys are really gifted, really, really thankful for this church that God is working here. Uh, so they asked me to share a testimony message. So you'll hear my testimony weaved into uh, some of the text that we'll use today. Uh, my greatest passion is what the Lord Jesus told us to do in the Great Commission, right? Uh, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And lo, I'm with you to the end of the age, teaching them all that I've commanded you to obey. So I'm not the smartest, uh, sharpest tool in the box, but if my commander, my loving Lord and Savior said, go make disciples, that's what I'm going to do. Amen? So I started doing that as a professional baseball player, discipling my teammates one-to-one. -one. And I thought everybody in the church did that because my pastor discipled me one-to-one, -one, so I just figured, and I was a young believer, I thought everybody went on missions trips. Uh, Drew mentioned 22 countries. It's actually 24, okay? But, uh, but I've been to, like, the Dominican Republic, like, 40 times you know, so many countries, multiple times, probably over 100 missions trips, but because I just thought that's what Christians do, you know, so I, I was just fat, dumb, and happy doing what I thought everybody did, right? So uh, God has been so gracious uh, to me and my family over many, many, many years. Ken is celebrating 40 years here, and my wife and I are celebrating 40 years of marriage next Monday. Isn't that pretty cool? When I met her, she had cataracts, and, and uh, she was probably drunk, so she didn't know what she was doing, but I don't know how she put up with me all these years, but she's a very, very lovely, godly woman, and she's a great, she's not a great grandmother, she's a grandmother, but she's great at that, if that makes sense. Um, so uh, I just want to go back in my childhood a little bit here, uh, as I mentioned uh, and why don't you turn to 1 Kings, if you have that um, in your Bible. That's going to be some of our text today. And uh, like I said, I'm going to weave in God's Word with my story throughout, okay? My second passion, other than making disciples, is biblical marriage counseling, okay? And all that is is taking God's Word to bear in people's situations and circumstances, it's really just another way to make disciples, amen? And my wife and I, we've been to biblical marriage counseling probably, it's been a long time, but early on in our marriage, we were stuck, and we, we needed some help. 
and, and uh, we got the good help that we needed. And it was biblical marriage counseling with some of the best counselors out there. Very thankful for that, okay? But let's look at 1 Kings chapter 17. And as I'm reading God's word, you know, listen with your heart. And I'm going to bring out some practical things that I think will bless us all. I know it's been a blessing to me. But let's, let's start here in, in, in chapter 17, uh, verse 1. Now Elijah, the Tishbite, who was of the settlers of Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, before whom I stand, surely there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Go away from here and turn eastward, Hide yourself by the brook Kareth, which is east of the Jordan. And it shall be that you shall drink of the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to provide for you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord, for he went and lived by the brook Kareth, which is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he would drink from the brook. And it happened after a while that the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. And then the word of the Lord came to him saying, Now arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and stay there. Behold, I have commanded a widow to provide for you. 1 Kings 17, 1 through 9. Father God, I just thank you for this amazing joy and privilege of making you look good, Lord Jesus. And I pray that you would speak to your servant. And Father, uh, we just praise you, Lord Jesus. The book of Revelation calls you faithful and true, the very word of God, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Lord, as was prayed earlier by our worship leader, Lord, would you please speak to our hearts? Help us to have ears to hear, eyes to see. And to receive your word, Lord, help us to be open to the power and to the love of your redemptive spirit. We love you. We praise you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. amen. All right. So back when I was uh, playing professional baseball, now there's something that Elijah did that was amazing. Remember when he took on the prophets of Baal? And, and destroyed the prophets of Baal. Altogether, them and the other priests, there was about 900 that God used him to destroy them. And, uh, but before he did that, God sent him away to a place called Kareth. Now, in verse 1, Elijah, this is the first we hear about him. It says in 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8, I believe it is, that he was a hairy man, and he wore a leather belt. A hairy man, and he wore a leather belt. Describes uh, who he was. Elijah was no chump. He was a powerful man of God. He wasn't intimidated by the culture at the times. And he confronted Ahab, one of the wicked kings in the northern uh, Israel. And so uh, there was no good kings, by the way, in Israel at the time. There were four good kings in Judah, which was the southern kingdom, after it had split under Solomon. There was Jeroboam on the Israel side and Rehoboam 
on the southern side. Again, only four good kings. If I remember correctly, it was, it was uh, Hezekiah, Josiah, Asa, and Jehoshaphat. They were the four good kings, but there was none on the northern side. Elijah comes in with King Ahab. Omri, who was before Ahab, brought in the worship of Baal. You've heard Baal, Zebub, even Jesus was called that, unfortunately. That was crazy, all right? But Ahab married Jezebel, who was a tried-and-true Baal worshiper, and she influenced Ahab in very negative ways. And, of course, the nation of the northern tribes of, of, of Israel. A Elijah comes in just unannounced. This is the first we hear of him, and he said to Ahab... It's not going to rain for three years, okay? Now, James 5.17 says Elijah was a man with passions just like us. He had a nature just like us. So he wasn't superhuman or anything like that, but God did superhuman things through Elijah, all right? And then uh, verse 2 says, the word of the Lord came to him saying, go away from here, turn eastward, hide yourself by the brook Kareth. Now, again, after Jeroboam, Elijah's into this about 75 years of total wickedness, uh, calf worship in Israel, and then eventually Baal worship, okay? And uh, he says, before he met the prophets of Baal, he said, go away from here and turn eastward, hide yourself by the brook Kareth. Now, here's where my testimony starts to come in here because uh, back when I was playing for the Toronto Blue Jays, um, you know, I was doing really good in the minor leagues and uh, I called my agent and I said, Pat, I said, uh, I understand that the Blue Jays have, have no plans for me. I said, I'd love to play in the big leagues somewhere else and uh, can, you, can, you, can you talk to them? And so... Um, I, I, I said that to Pat, my, my agent in Chicago. I actually called the Blue Jays, talked to the general manager, Pat Gillick, who was a pretty famous general manager. And I said, Pat, I said the same thing. I said, I understand you guys have no plans for me. I love the Blue Jays. I'm so thankful to be here. Thanks for giving me a chance. He goes, Don, 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 just hold on. Just hold on. Something's going to happen with you within two weeks. Now, rewind a little bit, and in spring training, um, that was, I think, in maybe June. In spring training, I was trying to make the team, and I was the last one cut. I was sent to AAA, and yet I was doing really, really, really well. And uh, the Blue Jays had asked me, you know, Don, I think you need to talk to someone, okay? I'm like, I'll do whatever it takes to get to the major leagues, and so here I am in Syracuse doing really well, not getting called up to the big leagues. And, um, and, and they, you know, they told me to call this number in Syracuse, New York, where the AAA team was, and it was the number of a clinical social worker. And uh, for me, that was a, a huge uh, pride thing. You know, I called this, 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 and she happened to be maybe 25 years old or something like that. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to go in there because I want to play in the big leagues. And I'm sitting there in front of this, this clinical social worker. And uh, 
not a believer. I was a believer. She wasn't. And you know, God used that woman in my life. What came out of that meeting was I had been holding some resentment against my wife. It really was, it was against her mother. And you know what? God was not going to allow me to play in the big leagues until I dealt with that bitterness and resentment in my heart that I was holding against my wife because of uh, my relationship with her mom. And so I went to my wife and uh, I said, Deb, I am so sorry. Uh, would, you, would you please forgive me? I've been holding this resentment against you because of your mom and I just need to humble myself before you. And she, of course, forgave me. A woman can tell when her husband is broken and humble. I mean, I've gone to my wife and I said, would you forgive me for this or that? And she's like, yeah, okay. But you haven't won my heart. She knows when I walk in and I'm totally broken by the Holy Spirit and she's never not forgiven me. Amen? She's a good woman. But what does that have to do with Elijah here? Because the brook here in the Hebrew Kareth means to cut. It means to cut. So let's call this Brook Bible Institute, okay? And so God was cutting me. He says, Don, I'm not going to put you against the prophets of Baal. For me, that meant the major leagues until you get your heart right. I'm not going to promote you and bless you until you make things right with your wife, which I did, okay? After Kareth, you know, the brook dried up because Elijah did pray that it wouldn't rain for three years, so the brook dried up. He was being fed by birds of prey, which that's what a raven is, so that's kind of a miracle right there, right? And, uh, and so after that, he sent him to Zarephath. In verse 8, it said, Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon. That was outside Israel. That was a Gentile location. And God sent uh, Elijah humbly from the brook Kareth, which means to cut, all right, to Zarephath in the Hebrew, which means to refine, to refine. Okay, so he graduated from Brook Bible Institute and went to Zarephath Theological Seminary to be refined before he could meet the prophets of Baal. And wouldn't you know it, um, God was refining me. He was conforming me to the image of his son, Jesus Christ, through my marriage, all right? And God wants to do the same with you, all right? So I don't know if you're at Brook Bible Institute in your relationship with the Lord, but God typically uses suffering and affliction and pain in our life Right? It says in 1 Peter 5.10, after you have suffered for a little while, God himself will perfect, uh, conform, and establish you in your faith. Okay? It doesn't say a book. It doesn't say a poem. It doesn't say music. It says God himself will perfect you. Okay? And what we don't realize a lot of times, if we're in a difficult marriage, say, so to speak, all right, or we have a wayward child, or we have a difficult thing going on at work or at home or with relatives, that God is using that circumstance to conform you to the image of Jesus Christ. 
My son Andrew lived in the darkness for probably 20, 25 years until a year ago. Heavy drugs, heavy irresponsibility. Uh, when we cleaned out his, out his apartment, we had four trash bags full of mail that he never looked at. Bills, just craziness altogether. My wife and I basically, basically gave up, but God didn't. And you know what? She came to me a year ago, at last July, and she said, man, I need to ask for your forgiveness because, because I have been holding you hostage basically because of my son, Andrew. I knew because I grew up in the streets of New York uh, what a drug addict was like, what an alcoholic was like, what it is to be codependent and all that. My neighborhood in New York City was wicked. I mean, it was like the heroin capital of the world back then. And a lot of my family members were addicted to stuff, and, and in particular, drugs. So I knew uh, what was going on with my son 20, 25 years ago, because I'd read his text, and I'd say, Deb, that, that's, that's an addict talking. No, no, no. That's, that's, that's mental illness. That's you know, childhood sexual abuse, what's going on there. I knew what was happening because I grew up on the streets, okay? But here's the, here's the beautiful thing about that. I had to love my wife unconditionally for 20 plus years and not hold resentment and bitterness toward her because she basically didn't know she's from the suburbs of New Jersey. Girls from the suburbs of New, of New Jersey are New York wannabes, okay? Anybody from New Jersey? Sorry, Nick. I know you're over here. You're from New Jersey. Okay? But uh, basically, she just didn't know. She grew up in the suburbs. I grew up in the streets. I knew what was happening. And I had to love my wife unconditionally through that for many, 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 many years. And I'm going to challenge you to do the same. Okay? Because Romans 8.28 is what? We kind of all know that verse, right? And God causes all things to work together for good for those that love him that are called according to his purpose. We kind of all know that. That's the good, the bad, and the ugly. That's your difficult marriage. That's your prodigal son or daughter or whatever's going on in your life that's a challenge right now. Don't run from that. Run to that, okay? Especially as it relates to, to marriage, okay? So my son Andrew, a year ago, uh, went into Adult and Teen Challenge, and he just graduated about a month ago and is doing amazing because of what God has done in his life. Thank you, yes. Praise be to Jesus Christ, our Lord. And, and he's really doing well. He's involved with Calvary Chapel Salem. This church has been amazing. They've been a blessing to him. And uh, he's very involved. He goes to like four Bible studies a week. He's got a job. He's got a place to live. He's got a car. Things are going really well. His name is Andrew, if you want to continue to pray for him. But I pray for many, many prodigals now uh, because of our son, okay? And God did not give up on him. We did, to be brutally honest. But it was interesting because once my wife let go and said, you know what, I've tried everything. I've, planned, I've tried plan A, B, C, D, and E with Andrew. And you know what, we're just waiting for that knock at the door, for the police to say, your son is dead. 
you know, or something. She let go, and it's amazing. It's almost like God said, thank you, now I can work, <laughs> you know? And uh, just great things are happening, okay? Our two daughters are walking very closely with the Lord. They live here, well, Sarah lives here. Christine is in Coeur d'Alene, but they all love Jesus, and we're so thankful that all three of our adult children are walking with the Lord. Colossians 3.19 says, Husbands, love your wives. And do not be embittered toward them. Do not be harsh with them. Why does Paul say that? Because we as men can get to that place very easily. Love your wives. Do not be harsh toward them. Okay? As I told you before, uh, I do a lot of biblical marriage counseling. Okay? And when I'm sitting with a couple, you know, one's throwing a bomb. Well, you don't, you don't know this about him. And, well, this is about her. And they're throwing bombs back and forth. The first thing we'll do is we'll say, let's pray. Let's humble ourselves. As it says in Philippians chapter 2, have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. What attitude is that? He humbled himself and he emptied himself. And I go, my friends, you're not humble and you're not empty. You've got all this stuff against each other. Let's pray. And then we can get into what the scripture says about marriage and about relationships like that, okay? Um, in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse, uh, verse 7, it says, Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way as with the weaker vessel. And, and it, that's the only time it mentions live with in the scriptures. Live with means, in that context, to do life with. In other words, study your wife. Romance your wife. Protect your wife. Honor your wife, even when you don't feel like it. And then in, in Ephesians chapter 5, it says what? To, to likewise cherish your wife and nourish your wife. You know, it's interesting. Couples will protect each other at first when I'm sitting with them. And, uh, and then I'll get to the part of, uh, I'll ask the woman, I'll say, are you number one in your husband's heart? Is it, are you the apple of his eye? Are you his special princess? Or are you fighting for affection with something else? Are you competing with, with whatever, a job, a computer, a drug or an alcohol habit or something? And you know what? That's when the tears start to come down for the women because they know they're not number one in their husband's life. And guys, we got to work on that. You know, baseball players will, will go in the cage and take 100 swings, 100 ground balls, 100 fly balls and get better and better and better. But when you ask them, what's your wife's favorite meal? What's your wife's favorite color? I used to get in big time trouble uh, when my wife would come home. She'd have a, a new hairdo. Do they still call it that, hairdos? Um, but my kids recognize all the time, like, mom, you got your hair done. And of course, she's looking at me. I'm like, I'm busted. I got no way out of this one. Okay, bust it again because I'm not studying my wife. You know, what's her favorite dress? You know, things like that. But ladies, I'm not going to let you off the hook either, 
okay? Because when I talk to men, and I've talked to many of them over many, many years, they have the uh, four deadly C's they mention, okay? And, and one is complaints, criticisms, corrections, and control. And that's the thing that men battle with with their wives. And typically, the women are trying to help their husbands, but, you know, I remember I forgot my wallet one time. We're at Macaroni Grill, and, and, and uh, my wife is there. And, and, of course, every time we got into the car after that, which could be multiple times a day with little children, guess what she would ask me? Did you bring your wallet? And finally, I learned how to communicate. And I said, Deb, every time you ask me that, I feel like I'm five years old and I forgot my crayons for kindergarten. And I said, because I'm a sinful man, I'm going to spite you and say stupid things and become irritable. And you know what? It happened again. Uh, I forgot my wallet. I forget what restaurant it was, okay? So she's standing there, you know, by the podium, and I'm looking at her. She's like... <laughs> um, and you know what? I felt so loved at that moment because I felt validated, and my love for her just was off the charts there, okay? She heard what I said, okay? And again, she was just trying to help me. She wasn't trying to bug me or irritate me, but you know what? We're both sinners living under the same roof, right? But it's interesting, the scripture says in Proverbs 14.1, the wise woman builds her house, the foolish one tears it down with her own hands. And many times she does it with words. Because women have, what, 25,000 words compared to the men's 12,000, right? And guys are all talked out at work and they don't want to talk when they get home. Don't say amen to that, okay? But... Anyway, she wants to change her husband, but it says in 1 Peter 3, 1, that you will win your husband if he's disobedient to the word without a word by your chaste and reverent behavior. Isn't that interesting? You know, uh, when, when, again, a man knows his wife wants to say something and correct him, and when she doesn't do that, she's actually winning him over and then God is using you because you're being godly, right, to change your husband. You know, Proverbs 15:1 says, A harsh word stirs up anger, but a quiet word turns away wrath. And I know when my wife and I, our dialogue's starting to get a little bit elevated. We're from the Northeast. We can't help it, okay? And, and, and when, when I can tell things are going sideways and she becomes quiet, I go, wow, I'm in the presence of God right now. And I need to respond in, the, in an appropriate way to my wife and not keep this elevated dialogue going, okay? But it's also interesting in the book of Proverbs, the smartest, richest man in the world at the time, Solomon said this, he said, it's better to live in the corner of a roof than a house shared with a contentious woman. It's better to live in a desert land and a house shared with a contentious woman. It's interesting that it says that. And I've, in my marriage, at times, I'm like, I think I would like to be in the corner of that roof and in a house shared with a contentious woman. What is a contentious woman? Everything's a contest. You say black, she says white. 
You say red, she says orange. Everything becomes a contest, right? And you know, a gentleman shared this with me a long time ago. But he said, Don, if your marriage is not stable by the time your wife goes through menopause, good luck, okay? It's actually paramenopause, right, that leads up. When you, when you hit menopause, you're done. It's, it's past you. Amen? <laughs> but the paramenopause is, you know, and women really, they can't help it. I mean, there's stuff, there's night sweats and there's crazy stuff going on there, okay? But guys, we are called to love our wives unconditionally, whether they're being Christ-like or not, amen? And God is using her to form Christ in your life. Once I figured that out, um, things just got a lot better, okay? Because God is sovereign in our relationships, okay? And marriage is the most intimate relationship that you can have outside of, outside of Christ, Amen? Your wife knows you. Husbands know their wives. Okay? And that whatever's going on there, unless there's crazy abuse or something, that's a whole different story and neglect. We're not talking about that. We're talking about the day-to-day ebb and flow of life in a marriage. Okay? But once you figure that out and that she's not the enemy and that he's not the enemy and God is using that most intimate spouse to form Christ in you, it's amazing, okay? But here's the thing. In America, you know, when we stand at the altar and we say for richer, for poorer, for better, for worse, in sickness and in health, as Americans, we don't think we're going to get sick. We don't think we're going to be poor, right? We don't think we're going to have those challenges. But we do because God is using it. Psalm 119, uh, 65, 67, and 75, I believe it says, it's good for me that I was afflicted. Now I keep your word. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. And uh, verse 75 in Psalm 119 is, in faithfulness, you, God, have afflicted me. God uses that affliction. He uses those painful things, especially in a marriage, all right, to uh, the affliction so that we would get into his word and know his word. Amen? All right. Um, I'm not sure how much time I've got left here, um, but uh, I'll say this one last thing about marriage. Uh, In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, if you have your Bible... Please turn there, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And guys, as, as, as a little kid and ladies, um, as part of my testimony, um, my father took his own life, and I found him as a 12-year-old. And, you know, I was angry at my father, because he used to hit my mother physically. I mean, as a five-year-old, we had nine kids. We were good Irish Catholics growing up, okay? We had three sets of bunk beds and one crib in the same room. And I remember lying in that bunk bed probably as a five, six, seven-year-old, and I remember my mother crying out, Donald, help, 
help me. But I was so scared because my father was so big and I was so little. And I still feel a little bit of guilt from that at times because it's in the DNA of a man to protect women, to protect his wife, to protect his mother. And you know, when I got saved, uh, the first person I forgave was my father. And I could say, I love my dad because of the love of Christ that's in me, amen? First of all, the fifth commandment says to honor your mother and father. It doesn't say whether he was a great father or a great mother, but it says to honor them. And I can do that with a pure heart. The other person I forgave was the person that abused me when I was a child, inappropriately. I didn't want to carry that monkey around. But, you know, uh, things were quite dysfunctional, our family, because my older brother also took his own life. He hung himself in prison. And I don't want you to feel sorry for me at all, but I know my father used to hear voices. I know my brother, who took his own life, heard voices. Had two other brothers that were homosexual, both had AIDS, both died of AIDS. Now, praise God, I was able to lead them both to Jesus Christ before they died in the hospital in San Francisco. And then my another brother died for drinking so much alcohol, he hit his head on the floor of his apartment and died from the loss of blood. So that's, that's my story, and I became a Major League Baseball player, but I want you to know did I hear those, those same voices? Don, you're not a good baseball player. You're not a good preacher. You're not a good missionary. You're not a good father. All those condemning voices. But my friends, I want you to hear this loud and clear. That's a good day for me because I know God's word. Amen? And I stand on God's word. Because if, without the word of God, without God himself, what are all these trials, you know? That's, that's my childhood. That's my experience. But again, that's a good day for me, okay? Uh, I just wanted to share that with you, not for you to feel sorry for me in any way, shape, or form. Because God is great in my life, completely. But I was on a bus trip from, uh, from Greenville, South Carolina to Columbus, Georgia, just part of my testimony. And I was on that bus traveling. I was in double A uh, with uh, the Toronto Blue Jays. And, um, and I remember God spoke to my heart on that bus ride. And God was gracious to me because I grew up in New York City. The trains were right there. They would go by every seven minutes, you know, shake the house as it went by. And... Uh, and the Lord spoke to me on that in my heart, and he said, Don, you know, my train has stopped at the station of your house many times, but you have rejected me. And guess what, Don? The train's not stopping anymore. You know, Romans chapter 1, verse uh, 24, 26, and 28, it says, uh, grace runs out. God gave them over to a depraved mind that they might believe what was false. And, you know, God was very gracious. He was very gentle, very holy, very loving, very kind. But he's like, Don, you keep rejecting me. And, you know, I knew that I had to make a decision, a commitment to the Lord, instead of playing games with God anymore. 
And uh, when we got to the hotel in Columbus, Georgia, I hit my knees. My coach gave me a Gideon's New Testament. I opened up that New Testament to uh, the beginning pages where it said, weary for me in New York City, Led Zeppelin, baseball player, who following rock and roll fighter guy admitted he was weary. That was a big step for me. And the scripture was Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30. And my friends, I want you to hear this verse for you right now. And any of you that don't know Christ, if you're not 100% sure that if you were to die tonight that you'd spend eternity in heaven with Jesus, the alternative's not very good. It's hell with Satan and the angel, his false angels. Okay? So I want you to listen to this verse and this is for you, okay? Even, and if you're not saved, I'm going to pray a prayer if you're not sure. Are you 75% sure? 50%? 25%? That's a question you have to ask in your own heart. Say, boy, would I really go to heaven if I died tonight? But it's Matthew 11, 28 through 30. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I am gentle and humble and you will find rest for your soul. Come learn from me. Those words are for you, okay? I'm not gonna have time to get into 1 Corinthians, but, uh, but I do wanna give an invitation, okay? Because I'm an evangelist, all right? So here's what Jesus gives us. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now listen with your heart. Listen with your heart. This is between you and the Lord, okay? But Jesus is saying to you in 2 Corinthians 5.21, give me your sin. Give me your hurts, habits, your hangups. Give me your filth. Give it to me. That's why I died on the cross. That's why I rose from the dead three days later, to purchase your salvation, because you can't earn that by yourself. I've done it for you on the cross. And guess what? I'm taking your garbage, your unrighteousness, and I'm going to give you my righteousness. That means he's giving us his very life. And then we can have a relationship with him, the Father, the Holy Spirit, the saints before us. What a great transaction. But God may be working in your heart right now to say, you know what? I'm kind of playing games. I'm not all in the way I should be. And I think I need to really recommit my life to Jesus or give him my life. But my friends, that involves repentance. Okay, it's a Greek word, metanoia. It means I'm going this way with my sin, and it's an about face with my attitude towards sin. It's not sinless perfection, but you're saying, I'm going to count the cost to follow Jesus. I'm willing to suffer for him. I'm willing to stand alone for Christ, no matter what the cost because it cost him everything. And could we not give him everything? Let me pray. 
Lord Jesus, we praise you for your goodness. You don't waste any of our trials and tribulations, especially when it relates to our marriages, our family relationships, our work relationships, even our church relationships. And God, if it would please you to shine your light into each of our souls, Lord, perhaps there's people here that don't know you. They've not really repented and fully committed to follow you. And I want to pray for them right now. If that's you and you're not sure, or you want to recommit your life to Christ and start new, you can pray something like this. Quietly in your heart, pray to God, don't pray to me. You can say, Dear Jesus, I believe that you are the Son of God. And I believe that there's no name under heaven by which men must be saved, but that of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, help me. I give you my sin, Lord. I'm sorry for my sins. And I believe you died on the cross for me personally. Please come into my heart and be the Lord of my life. And Jesus, I believe that you rose from the dead three days after you died, proving your deity. Thank you, Lord, for coming into my heart. I truly surrender all to you today. Lord, help me to understand the Bible better, to get involved, to be the man or the woman that you want me to be. I need your help, Lord. I can't do it alone. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Hey, I would just challenge you if you've uh, committed your life to Christ or recommitted your life to Christ that you would tell somebody. If you confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father who's in heaven. If you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father in heaven. You've been very gracious. Thank you.